This episode is sponsored by my dear friend at Alpen Glow Skin Spa. Are you searching for the perfect boutique spa oasis, expert hands, corrective skincare advice, and are you located in the Denver area? If so, I highly recommend my friend Courtney Parkhill at Alpen Glow Skin Spa. She is a trusted esthetician for 15 years, providing corrective facials, chemical peels, dermaplaning, and high-quality professional home care. She's located in the high-altitude alpine desert of Woodland Park, Colorado, just 14 miles from Colorado Springs and 45 miles from Denver. Courtney wants people to feel cozy, relaxed, safe, and taken care of in her spa, but with the ultimate goal of reaching your skincare goals with a blend of active and botanical clinical ingredients. Retreat to the mountains and rejuvenate your skin. Courtney works on all skin types, all skin concerns, especially rosacea, pigment, aging, and acne. Come have a glass of wine or tea and experience results and relaxation at Alpen Glow Skin Spa. Hello everyone, welcome back to the treatment room. I am your host, Tessa Zolli. We are in for a treat today. I know many of you have requested an episode focused solely on ingredients, so that's what we'll be doing today. I am back with my mentor, Michelle Phelan. We recently filmed a YouTube together of Michelle giving me a microneedling treatment, and Michelle has been a guest on the podcast quite a few times now. She is the founder of Concepts Institute of Advanced Aesthetics, as well as a Sedesco diplomat and esthetician, of course. She teaches a course on ingredients, which I highly recommend and have taken myself and actually recommend to a lot of you. But today we're going to be talking about ingredients and mentioning some of the most important ones and their functions and how we can use them in the treatment room. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you, Tess. Good to be back here with you and good to be back here with everyone. Super excited for your show today and to talk about some of these great ingredients. So I have been um, teaching cosmetic uh, ingredients and cosmetic chemistry. I taught um, a portion of the Sedesco program, which is an international program for, for many decades. And cosmetic chemistry, cosmetic ingredients is one of the um, lessons that I taught and, and take a really deep dive into. I have also had a product line myself that I designed. It uh, was an aromatherapy product line and I work together closely with some of the cosmetic chemists who have created a product line for us too. And um, as you know, and you've also taken, I teach the uh, clinical aesthetics phase of things here at Concepts Institute of Advanced Aesthetics and uh, focus also a lot on ingredients in every class that we have, but we also have a separate class. Um, and I know that you, you know about that, you've taken it, a separate class called Cosmetic Ingredients. It's online on demand and it's an all day class an eight hour class. So yeah, I've uh, one of my favorite topics to teach is cosmetic uh, sciences. Fantastic. Well, we're going to get into it today. We have quite a few ingredients here to talk about. So let's start at the top. Let's start with vitamin C great antioxidant. Michelle, what are some of the forms of vitamin C that you recommend in skincare? Yeah, so vitamin C, there's several different types of vitamin C under the umbrella of vitamin C or ascorbic acid. And I know it can be really confusing because, you know, we see a lot of these ingredients, not just in moisturizers and serums where they're really super effective because those are the ingredients that actually stay on your skin and um, you know create a, a physiological effect, but they're also in toners and cleansers and other things along those lines. So vitamin C, there are a couple of different forms of vitamin C. One is called L-ascorbic acid, and there's another one called sodium ascorbyl phosphate. Both of these are water-loving. There's also ascorbyl palmitate, 
which is oil loving. So whether you are, you know, looking at a product that is more water loving, maybe like a gel that you want to leave on the skin, you will, you know, most likely find L-ascorbic acid because it binds better with the gel, with the water loving ingredient. And, um, you know, if you're looking for an oil loving product, you're going to find the, the other type of vitamin C. So it's important to know, you know, uh, what type of vitamin C you're using and is it in the correct formula to be most beneficial for the skin? I think that's a really good point and it can depend on the person, right? It can depend on the skin type. Are there certain forms of vitamin C you would recommend for an oily skin type versus somebody who's more sensitive? Yeah, exactly. So for an oilier skin type, it would be the L-ascorbic acid. You know, you might find this form of vitamin C in a gel. You might find it together with hyaluronic acid, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about hyaluronic acid later. It's something that would be left on the skin. And now, mind you, vitamin C in and of itself is fairly water loving unless it's binded with other functional groups that makes it a little bit more oil loving or better able to bond or absorb in the skin and or into the skin rather. Now, I'm sure most of the estheticians know that the epidermis, right? The epidermis is more oil loving than it is water loving. And the dermis, you know, deeper down is more water loving than it is oil loving. Um, they both don't allow a lot of ingredients to penetrate. They allow some ingredients to penetrate. So water loving a form of an ingredient in general tends to want to sit more on the surface of the skin and protect the surface of the skin. You know, the first few layers of epidermis where an oil loving ingredient in general wants to penetrate a little bit more deeply into the epidermis and helps to protect and nourish some of the deeper epithelial cells. Um, so as far as you know, your topical uh, vitamin C's that are in a gel or water loving ingredient like hyaluronic acid or maybe aloe vera, they're still antioxidant and vitamin C in general is an antioxidant. It could also be an exfoliant it has that sort of acid functional group, you know, hence the word um, L-ascorbic acid. Anytime you hear the word acid attached to any ingredient, you know that it has or it contains an acid functional group, which helps to lower the pH of the skin a little bit when it's applied to the skin. It could also be slightly exfoliating. Uh, but vitamin C in general is a great antioxidant. It helps to battle off free radicals, right? Free radicals can be caused by the sun. You know, they can be caused by our devices. They can be caused by stress. And free radicals, of course, as we know, can cause anything as simple as maybe dry skin to something more significant like fibroblast damage or enzyme damage, which can cause premature aging or even DNA damage. Right, which in time can be, you know, create problems or even be carcinogenic. So vitamin C in general, being an antioxidant, helps to lend its electron, vitamin C's electron, to the free radicals in the skin that are missing electrons and stop that sort of molecular disintegration, stop those atoms from stealing from each other and balance the skin. So an antioxidant, it is great. You know, that's one of its, uh, you know, the beauties of, of having vitamin C in a product and either a water loving or oil loving product. Also vitamin C can be somewhat exfoliating because of that acid functional group. It may not be extremely exfoliating. A lot of it depends upon the pH of the vitamin C. You know, is it very acidic? Is it not very acidic? But in general, vitamin C is somewhat acidic. Um, that's why you know we call it ascorbic acid. So it has some mild exfoliating properties, um, at least you know, and, and it can even be a little bit more exfoliating if the pH of that vitamin C is more acidic. 
Um, also, uh, vitamin C is known as a melanogenesis inhibitor. You know, it inhibits pigmentation. It slows down the production of melanin by binding to and kind of being a disruptor for the tyrosinase enzyme, which, you know, can create sometimes too much pigmentation. So where you have hyperpigmentation. So when you're using vitamin C products, it can slow down that hyperpigmented melanocyte so that it goes back to normal again. And also just being an antioxidant, you know, just, you know, in and of itself, that helps to kind of stop free radical damage. And at the beginning of the whole process of melanogenesis, you know, of, of, of the, that damage of the melanocyte, it always starts with, you know, ultraviolet radiation or some type of other type of damage. So vitamin C helps to lend an electron and slow down that process. So yeah, it's a, it's very, very multifaceted. It's very multifaceted. I would say it has a lot of benefits as well that just like you said, Michelle, are happening in the deeper layers of the skin. It's, it's producing collagen. It's working to inhibit pigment. And I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion, but I love vitamin C. I think it's something we should all, you know, find a derivative we can we can use to protect our skin and to preserve it. Sometimes I feel like the expectation with vitamin C maybe is a little bit unrealistic. And I'm curious to ask mm. your opinion on this, Michelle, because I think sometimes people expect full lightening and brightening of pigment, which does happen, but I would say to me, it's an ingredient we should use every day and use long-term, but I would say those results seem more long-term to me. Does that make sense? For sure. This is something that you can't just use once or twice. It's not like a one and done thing. You can't use it for a week or a month and expect that brightening effect. It's something that, like you say, it's something that you have to use over a long period of time. A lot of it depends upon the percentage of vitamin C. A lot of it depends upon, you know, does it have um, a liposomal delivery system you know is it being is it attached to a phospholipid so it's able to penetrate a little bit more deeply into the tissue of course if it goes deeper into the tissue into the basal cell zone you're going to have greater effects right if it just sits on the surface of the skin you're not going to have the same effect and because vitamin c is in and of itself water loving it can evaporate you know if you applied it to the surface of the skin it could very easily evaporate. That's why I like to use, you know, vitamin C in a liposome, a liposomal delivery system, which is a little teeny tiny fatty lipid, you know, a, a phosphate, a little fatty lipid that is often injected with vitamin C so that it's able to kind of sneak past, if you will, right, the oil-loving barrier of the epidermis and be able to take a deeper dive into the tissue and then deposit it deeper into, you know, potentially the basal cell zone where the cells are still alive and they're still well and they haven't, you know, undergone cell death yet. But you're absolutely right. You know, there are so many different, um, I don't even want to just say types of vitamin C, but uh, qualities of vitamin C and how are they used in a skincare product is really important. Being able to get the vitamin C deeper into the tissue is really important. Um, you know, part of the reason why I like to use, um, you know, a liposomal delivery system for that penetration um, and ascorbyl, the palmitate that we talked about, which is oil loving, an oil loving form of vitamin C, you know, that's going to be able to absorb a little bit more deeply. Just really keep in mind that the epidermis is not very water loving. So when you apply water loving ingredients to it, it has a really hard time to penetrate, right? Oil and water are not miscible. So it has a hard time to penetrate. So you want to find these types of vitamin C that has a uh, the ability 
to penetrate more deeply and so that it will be more effective. But using it long-term is important. You don't want to overuse it. You know, you don't want the skin to build up a sensitivity to it. Of course, if you're developing a lot of rashing and irritation and erythema, you want to cut it down a little bit, or maybe you want to use some ceramides or other soothing agents along with it or right afterwards. And of course, you know, of course we have to use that sunblock to protect against the sun because vitamin C without the use of a sunblock can make hyperpigmentation actually worse. So sunblock, of course, yes. anytime, yes. right? Got to wear your sunblock, but yes. really keep that in mind when you're using vitamin C products. Right. And that's a good point. SPF and vitamin C go hand in hand. Hand in hand. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. I feel like we could talk about vitamin C all day, but we'll try to try to keep this moving. So on to retinol, another gold standard ingredient. Would you like to talk about the benefits of retinol, Michelle, and maybe some different forms as well? Yeah, absolutely. So retinoids are um, vitamin A derivatives and retinol and retin-A um, fall under this umbrella, right? So retinol, when you think about retinol, probably all of you have seen retinol somewhere in your products, right? Whether it be in a moisturizer or a serum or even a cleanser, you've seen it somewhere in your products. And retinol is a natural form of vitamin A. But here's the thing. When you apply it to the skin, it doesn't work right away. The enzyme has to convert from the retinol into retinoic acid first. And that could even take months, right? Whereas Retin-A, the pharmaceutical grade uh, version, right, of these retinoids, that's not the case but retinol it is. So I have clients, even myself, that will say, well, I've been using this retinol product, you know, for a week and I'm not noticing real exfoliation or brightening. Really, you've got to give it a month or two for it really to start to show effects. And if it is at a high enough percentage, right, if your other ingredients in there in your product, in your cream, work together with Retin-A. Maybe you've got some other exfoliators or other antioxidants. After a month or two, you should start to see the, the effects of this retinol. And the effects are mildly exfoliating. Um, retinols and the, these vitamin A derivatives at some point can also be a melanogenesis inhibitor. So they actually inhibit the production of melanin, helping to lighten the skin. It also helps to break up a little bit. Some of those melanosomes that clump together in the skin breaks them up so they're not so binded together. Like, you know, when you look at hyperpigmentation on the skin, you see big brown marks. And it's because those little melanocytes underneath there are producing melanin at a very, very fast, rapid rate. And the retinol products help to break that up a little bit, where the color moves from the melanocyte into the tissue and then becomes part of the tissue. There's disruption there with the retinol, even more disruption there with the Retin-A, but there's disruption there with the retinol and you start to see some lightening. And of course, some you know better color to the skin, some smoothing of the texture. It also goes into the hair follicle and helps to clean and clear the follicular lining, the hair follicle lining. The hair follicle has the same layers of skin that the epidermis does. So you're not just exfoliating the superficial tissue, but you're also exfoliating the hair follicle, which is great for congestion because it helps to potentially unclog the hair follicle, thereby getting rid of, you know, some comedones and preventing melia and of course the subsequent pustules and sebaceous cysts from forming. And then there is the, of course, you know, there's Retin-A, which we all know there are different percentages. Doctors have to prescribe it. Um, it's a pharmaceutical. It's a synthetic form of vitamin A. It doesn't have to go through that whole enzymatic, you know, breakdown. 
it's immediately available for the skin. So you don't really have to wait months for it to show, um, you know, improvement. You do have to be a little bit more careful with Retin-A, which sometimes we call, you know, tretinoin, because it can be overly stimulating. It can really seriously speed up the cell renewal process so quickly that the skin becomes dry and flaky as it's, you know, making its way to the surface so quickly and not desquamating as quickly, the skin can become very, very dry and flaky. So it's important to kind of watch that. Of course, a sunblock is super important. Of course, using serums and moisturizers with maybe squalane or ceramides is important to help soothe and calm the skin while all this is happening. And if you use Retin-A for a period of time, right, that's the Retin-A I'm talking about, the, the pharmaceutical grade, the tretinoin, for a period of time, you'll see an improvement of the skin, a brightening of the skin. You'll even have a stimulation of the fibroblasts, which are cells deeper in the dermis. And again, this is with Retin-A and not so much with Retinol, but you will have a, st a stimulation of the fibroblasts, which are in the dermis. And of course, as we know, fibroblasts produce more collagen for plumping, right? A, a little elastin for tightening. And also a constituent called glycosaminoglycans, which is a constituent that holds on to water in the tissue, deeper in the tissue, like dermal in the tissue. But yeah, whether you're using, you know, a retinol or you're using a retin-A, they both have the exfoliating, smoothing, brightening properties and should, of course, be worn with a, a sunblock like with, with all of these others. Yes, and I'm glad you spoke a little bit on tretinoin having more of a medical background. I feel like it's it's a topical sometimes that gets a bad reputation in the aesthetics community or is not fully understood. And I think it is it is good for us to understand it, even if we're not prescribing it as SDs, because your clients may may have a history of using it or um, have questions about using it. And you can always refer them back to their germ, of course. But I do think it's it's good to just have a general awareness of it. I am a longtime <laughs> Tretinoin user, and I'm really thankful for this product. It has been something that's been pretty monumental in my acne journey. So I might be kind of on an island with this one in the aesthetics community, but it is it is a product that has been very helpful for me. Yeah, and you know, and I use it um, several times a week, especially around you know the jawline area or area where I feel like I am getting some lines to help smooth those out. And it's not just topical. I have a lot of clients think, well, it's going to exfoliate the skin and and um, thin the skin and therefore lines are going to be softer, but it is actually absorbed deeper into the tissue and is able to activate to some degree fibroblasts that, you know, they're cells that live in the dermis and when activated synthesize these constituents like collagen elastin, of course, and us older folks, you know, collagen elastin and everybody, but especially the older folks where fibroblasts are no longer producing collagen elastin, it's important to have some activation. And Retin-A is one of those things that can do it. And I know for, you know, uh, clients and patients who have acne, even though we know most acne, right, acne vulgaris begins with a hormonal imbalance or an abundance of androgen, it still begins with a clogged hair follicle. So if you're able right. to keep those follicles clean and clear and free from congestion, that that's half that's half the battle. But yeah, retinols too, you know, that the cosmetic retinols once used over a period of time, you'll start to see some similar effects if the percentage is high enough to those individuals who are using Retin-A instead. I don't think if my client is using Retin-A though, I will also, um, you know, sell him or her a retinol product that, that wouldn't be necessary. Right. But if they're right. not using a, a Retin-A, then, you know, absolutely, this might be a great part of their regime. 
Yes, it just, it really depends on the person. And even working in a medical spa, we had, you know, nurses prescribing the tretinoin and I was still, you know, doing facials and providing the rest of of their routine. But I think that's also an area where it can be helpful to just understand the two and and kind of know, you know, if somebody is on tretinoin, how you would, how you would, cater to the rest of the routine. It might mean not as frequent use of other acids, which we'll get into in a little bit. And it can, it can be something you want to be mindful when, when you're getting things like chemical peels or an eyebrow wax. Um, so those are just some things to, to be conscious of when, when you're using tretinoin, it does kind of <laughs> take hold of the routine in certain ways, and you may have to back off in other areas and a retinol or a retinol palmitate might be better for your first time retinol user or more sensitive to dry client. Exactly. And you know, if you're using a retinol product and the skin does become a little flaky, you can always prescribe sell to your client a very, very gentle enzyme, an at-home enzyme with maybe some bromelain from pineapple or papain from papaya to help digest some of that flakiness and that dry skin. Because sometimes as the skin is coming up to the surface so quickly, it doesn't have time to actually desquamate, right? Drop off from the surface and you get that flakiness kind of like a peeling snake. So enzymes and products with ceramides, are very helpful at helping to sort of rebalance and um, regulate, right, the the oil flow in that area. Yes, I definitely agree. And I like that you mentioned the enzymes because I think sometimes the purging period can be exacerbated if we're not removing those dead cells. Like Michelle said, acne really starts in the follicle. So we want to keep that, keep that clear and remove that dead cell buildup that you might notice when you start using a retinol. Right. And with, uh, with retin-A, with the, with the pharmaceutical, you know, you will get some peeling after a while. Now, if the patient is still peeling, um, very aggressively, just like a snake, you know, two or three months down the line, then I would have them talk to the doctor maybe about reducing the strength or reducing the application. Because of course, at first, you are going to get a lot of peeling with Retin-A, but that should kind of calm down after about a month or so. Now, if it doesn't, then adjustments do need to be made. That might happen with the retinols too, for someone with really, really sensitive skin, or if they're overusing the product or not following the manufacturer's directions, you know, overusing the product, but probably not as, yeah, probably not as, uh, as badly. Yes, 100%. You want to follow directions, pea size amount if it's tretinoin, um, or follow the, the instructions and make sure you're not overdoing it because you will know once you've overdone it. And I have experienced um, sensitivity from from retinol or a rash from overdoing it. So um, always better to just, you know, go slow and, and build build your tolerance. Exactly, exactly. Think less is more. We'll start out slowly. We can always add in later and add a little bit more in later following a manufacturer's directions, of course. Um, And if it's just too much, even if the manufacturer says to do it a certain way, then, you know, going back to your esthetician, going back to the physician and asking, you know, their, you know, advice and opinion. What should I do now? Should I decrease or should I add something to it? So, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Okay, moving on to AHAs. Michelle, which acids would be included in this category? Yeah, so there are quite a few acids here, starting with glycolic acid. I'm sure everybody knows glycolic acid. Glycolic acid is um, naturally derived from sugarcane. Um, nowadays, pretty much they're, you know, most of them are synthetically produced because they're more predictable. And often manufacturers and chemists will say even safer if they're synthetically produced because they are predictable. Um, but glycolic acid naturally is and was derived from sugarcane. It has two carbon atoms. So of 
all of the alpha hydroxy acids, it's the smallest in molecular structure. Um, and it generally, all things being the same, it usually penetrates a little bit more effectively than some of its sister AHAs here. AHA or alpha hydroxy acids to start with is just a special group of organic acids that are derived from fruit and food and other sources like that. And the acid functional group is used, is extracted and then added into creams and gels and moisturizers, you know, some being stronger, some being weaker. So of course they're at home versions that are much weaker and um, spa or clinic versions that are stronger. Um, they can be more acidic, they can be less acidic, but definitely glycolic acid is um, the, the big sister of all of these AHAs. Most people, don't have an allergy to glycolic acid. Um, if you are going to do a peel in the clinic, you probably want to do a patch test the day before. Glycolic acid is just a really good, I don't want to say old fashioned, but it's been around for so long. We did, you know, glycolic peels in the 80s prior to even knowing about some of the other AHAs. It's a great exfoliator. Um, if you don't have very active pustular acne, but you have some mild sort of underground acne, it does help to dry up some of the breakouts a little bit. It helps to smooth the texture of the skin. So it's a really good retexturizing agent. It does some brightening. It's not a real melanogenesis inhibitor, meaning it doesn't block the enzyme tyrosinase as well, but it does help to break up some of that sort of coalesced or clumped together color. So the skin looks better, it looks brighter, at least, you know, temporarily while you're you're using the glycolic acid. I used it for years for my acne when I was younger, and it really helped to keep the follicles clean and clear so that oxygen and oil could come out of the follicle properly and, excuse me, oil and sweat could come out of the follicle properly and oxygen. Mm -hmm oxygen can go into the follicle to help sort of keep, you know, that bacteria, that propiony bacterium in check. So I like glycolic. I know a lot of people now kind of feel, oh, it's more older school. There's so many others out there that are, um, you know, more multifaceted and they mm. do other things, but I still really like glycolic acid. What, what do you think? Yes, I mean, you can't go wrong with a little glycolic peel. I feel like that's a great option for every spa to have. Um, I, I'd i say lactic and, and glycolic are, are some of my favorites. I know peels have really evolved and it can depend on the person, but I mean, I feel like glycolic is just so useful to have because you know, for your more normal to oily or uh, clients concerned with with premature aging, it's just such a great one. It's a it's a it's a standby. Yeah, definitely, definitely a standby. I have two <laughs> of them in clinic. Um, in the in the peels class, we talk about all of these peels. We talk about you know the AHAs, the BHAs. We talk about the enzymes. How about lactic acid? I really, I do yeah. truly love lactic acid as sort of yeah. a, a brightening agent. I call it glycolic acid's more gentle sister. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, I would it, agree. Or, yeah, it's got three carbon atoms, so it takes a little longer to penetrate the skin. Again, depending upon the pH, the pH is it really matters when it comes to acidity level, but lactic acid naturally occurs in sour milk. So if you just kind of let your milk in your refrigerator go bad and it starts to smell and sour, you're actually, you know, growing, right? Um, lactic acid, you're producing lactic acid. I don't know that I would use that on skin, but um, lactic acid is very, um, you know, very brightening. It's a natural melanogenesis inhibitor. It is a um, mild exfoliator. Uh, it, it also helps to stimulate something called glycosaminoglycans in the skin, which helps to boost hydration in the deeper levels in layers of skin. And um, it's a good standalone treatment, just like glycolic is. And I find it in a lot of products too. What about you, cleansers as well as moisturizers? I 
think it's such a great option for peels is probably my preference um, because it can be such a kind of a good introductory peel. I think even a spa, you know, could survive just having an enzyme peel, a lactic peel, and a glycolic peel, just like you said, having kind of glycolics uh, more mild sister for for those more normal to dry or sensitive clients. Um, And I'd even be comfortable using it, you know, on certain rosacea clients as well. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of lactic and I think you can get great results with more mild lactic peels as well. I know some people are more partial to TCAs or salicylic peels or, you know, more intense ones, but I think you can also get great results just building over time. Exactly. Yeah, I do like lactic. I have a couple of different lactic peels that I use in clinic. And if I have a client or patient, you know, comes in and they have maybe melasma, and of course, there's a whole treatment protocol that goes with this, but I would definitely grab the lactic acid versus the glycolic acid in helping to, you know, release some of that color. Um, act as an inhibitor as well. Now, as far as the melanogenesis inhibitor, I like to see the lactic acid in a cream, right? Or in a moisturizer so that the client is using it every day because when you use it every day, it has an accumulative effect and it's going to affect the melanocyte over a period of time and help to suppress that melanocyte and help to lighten the skin. Of course, we know that a sunblock has to go along with it. But yeah, I like to use, I have lactic also in a cleanser that we have for brightening. I know with cleansers, you put them on, you take them off, and um, you don't maybe have that same effect because you're not leaving it on the skin. But it definitely has that exfoliation, that kind of on-contact exfoliation. So lactic acid is one of my... um, you know, favorite ingredients for improving texture and also for brightening when you find it in creams and moisturizers, Mm -hmm. usually as the melanogenesis inhibitor, it's not kind of a standalone ingredient. It's usually maybe along with the zeliac acid or arbutin or other ingredients that help to suppress pigmentation as well because they're power in numbers. But yes, I I definitely, um, you know, I'm definitely for lactic acid. I, I like lactic acid. I think it does a really good job. Yes. And acids too. I think you mentioned, Michelle, you like them in cleansers, which can definitely be helpful for sort of dislodging that cellular glue. And if, if you're concerned with keeping pores clear and clean, acids can definitely be helpful in that sense. Definitely, definitely. And that is what helped when I was younger, my acne, of course, you don't want to use it right over open or crusting or bleeding acne, but maybe underground acne or just in areas where there's not so many breakouts. But yeah, lactic acid along with glycolic acid in general in the professional arena, when you're using it as a peel, they can be standalone peels on their own. But there's also another, you know, the rest of the family, like, right? We've got Peruvic, Malic, Tartaric, Ascorbic. Um, Peruvic acid, if I could just mention it, Peruvic acid is uh, from lemon, right? Lemon, citrus fruit. Um, It's great. It's also an antioxidant. It is a mild, mild inhibitor. Um, It's definitely an exfoliator. It has three carbon atoms, just like lactic, but it's a little bit more antioxidant than lactic. Uh, it is derived from citrus fruit, and that's one of the reasons. And then there's malic. Malic is from apples. Um, a milder, you know, I believe four carbon atoms, a milder exfoliant. Now, some of these others, the peruvic, malic, tartaric, and ascorbic, they're not often found as standalone in professional peels, but instead combined together to be a bit stronger, right, to be more effective. Um, but yeah, malic is great when it's combined with 
Perubic or malic, or even when it's combined with glycolic or lactic, depending upon you know what the goal is and what the rest of the product contains. It's you can't just take one ingredient out of context, but you want to look at right. the full you know a, array right. of ingredients. And then there's tartaric. You remember tartaric, Tess? From grapes, from right? Yeah, grapes. Grapes, a milder exfoliator also a mild antioxidant sometimes you find it in like brightening masks that you leave on the skin for a, a short period of time or you find tartaric with the others right to make it um you know a little more powerful a little bit more effective and then uh, there's ascorbic ascorbic vitamin c right from um from oranges essentially and it's got the largest, the largest carbon atom of all the sisters, if you want to call them sisters or brothers. It's got the largest, uh, you know, molecular structure. It's a great antioxidant. It helps to mildly exfoliate. It's a good brightener. I find that a lot of my clients like it when maybe Jesner's is a little too strong for them, mm -hmm. or you know, they also are a little maybe on the older side where I, I would maybe grab the ascorbic peel instead of the lactic peel, which e mm -hmm. either one of them would be very helpful. Yeah. So all of these AHAs and here's the thing too, with AHAs, if you, you know, your followers don't know or are not familiar is they are water loving instead of oil loving. And of course the epidermis is oil loving. So being on the skin, you know, they don't usually hit the skin uh, burning quite as quickly as something like a salicylic acid would. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're great exfoliators. Some of them are brighteners, help to retexturize the skin. Uh, but they are not the very best with controlling oil. Glycolic will control oil a little bit in the, the follicular lining, but uh, definitely, you know, your BHAs are, your BHA being salicylic is what we use, is a better controller of oil, if you will. We also, we don't want to forget mandelic, right? <laughs> right, right. No, these are all good. Um, I'd even like to circle back a little bit to salicylic, Michelle, because a question I've been mm. getting recently from Estes is, you know, we have the salicylic peel at my, at my work. How do I know if it's okay to use on a client? How, what's the best way to gauge the strength of a peel? And I know you have a good opinion on this and I've learned a lot through your chemical peels class as well, but what do you look at? What do you look at when it comes to appeal strength and judging if something may be just right or maybe too much for a client? Yeah. So most of the time, and, and if they don't, the manufacturer, you could ask the manufacturer, you know, what, what is the what is the ph of this this peel you know once with everything taken into consideration all of the ingredients blended together and uh, not just the acid in this peel itself but the overall peel in general so if you were to test the overall peel with all of the ingredients that it includes and you were to take a little bit of it out and put it into a small glass you know bowl and then you were to take a ph pencil, pencil, I would say pen, pencil, a hydrion pencil, and kind of take that pencil and whip it around in that bowl and check out the color, you know, see what color it uh, comes up. And usually the company that makes the pH pencil will also give you a little chart that goes with it. And you want to take a look at that chart and see what is the acidity level, you know, all together, taking everything into consideration. Um, if you test your skin, let's just say you're just going to test your skin and not a product and you take a little distilled water and you rub it on your cheek or on your forehead and you take this pencil and then you rub that pencil on your skin, the pH pencil that is, and you look down at the chart, you know, it should come up. The color that should come up is the color of a pumpkin, which is around a pH of five. That would be the pH of human skin. You know, somewhere between about four and a half and six and a half. 
I might be naturally four and a half. You might be naturally five and a half, but that's normal, somewhere between four and a half and six and a half-ish. So if you were to test your skin and look at the chart, the chart would show you that, you know, your skin would come up a little orange, like the color of a pumpkin. So anything um, beneath that, if it gets to be more um, orange or even into the pink or into the red range, you know, that's more acidic and more acidic. So if you go down the line, you know, from a five to a four, that is more acidic, a four to a three, that's more acidic and three to a two and so on and so forth. And it's squared too. So what that means is if your skin is a pH of five, let's say, okay. And then you test a product in its entirety. And that product is a pH of four, right? That product is 10 times more acidic than your skin. If you were to test another product and that product that you're testing is a pH of three, that product would be a hundred times more acidic than your skin. If you were to test another product, and that product, you know, is a pH of two. That would be again, you know, up that. So that would be a thousand, a thousand times more acidic than your skin. So it's important to know what the acidity level of the product is in its entirety, so that when you apply it to the skin, you'll have an idea of how exfoliating it is, right? I call it the burn factor. <laughs> how you know is it going to exfoliate? I don't like to say burn, but I just say it in my own mind, the burn factor. But <laughs> how well is it going to exfoliate? Because a lot of people will look at a peel and say, oh, it's 40%. So this 40% peel has gotta be stronger than the 20%. Not necessarily as far as the burn factor is concerned. It, of course, if, it, if it's a higher percentage, it's got more of the active ingredient in there. So what else does the active ingredient do, right? With salicylic acid, the active ingredient can control oil. The active ingredient can be antibacterial, right? And there are other things mm -hmm. that we'll cover. Mm -hmm. But so that's what you're looking at when you're looking at a percentage. How, these other factors, these other properties are greater when the percentage is higher as far as 10%, 20%, 30%. That's what I mean. But as far as the acidity level, that has a lot to do with how it's going to receive this peel. You know, is it going to burn the skin? I think I told you before, maybe I told your followers in one of our last discussions that, or maybe I didn't test. You could stop me if I already told you the story, but I wanted to just tell it to you quickly <laughs> again. Yes, um, I had a lactic acid that came into the clinic and I have lots of different lactic acid peels, you know. 10, okay. You have 20, not told me 30. this. Oh, okay. This is important. <laughs> so I have about, I don't know how many lactic acid peels in the clinic from different manufacturers, different percentages, and also different pH. And I got a, you know, a peel in and it said something like 20%. And I'm thinking, okay, it's lactic acid. It's 20%. It's probably not that caustic, right? It's probably not that mm -hmm. acidic, but you know, I didn't test it. And luckily I didn't test it on any clients. I tested it on myself mm -hmm. and I cleaned my skin. I prepped my skin. I applied the lactic acid. I thought I doused myself with gasoline and lit my face on fire. I mean, oh I just got like my fire, my face oh my <laughs> went up in flames. Oh no. I was afraid I this story was going there. And I just immediately, thank God I tested it on myself and not someone else. Should have tested it first, right? With the pH pencil or asked the manufacturer right. to, to disclose the acidity level. So I removed it and then I tested it. I actually went back, which I should have done first and tested it. It was a pH of one. Oh, in its entirety, wow. in, in the entire formula. Um, and not we're not just picking out the acid itself. Of course, it's blended in with a lot of other things. So when I looked at this, I go, okay, well, my skin's pH is five, and this is a one. So from a five to a four would be 10 times stronger, right? Five to a three, 100 times stronger, five to a two, 1,000 times stronger. 
a 5 to a 1, 10,000 times more acidic than my own natural pH. No wonder my face was on fire. So I think in most cases, and I know it depends upon your state license and your state, what they allow, but in most states, I believe that a pH of 3 is fine with most state boards. I know when you get below a pH of 2.5, it can get kind of tricky. So for the estheticians who are asking about salicylic acid, if you're wanting to use salicylic acid for the properties, the other, not the, the burn factor, sorry, I'm using that term, but for the other factors of being able to control oil or to be antimicrobial or to help to slow down holocrine secretion, which is the way that the skin secretes oil, right? Does that as well. You really need to know, right? The overall formula and its acidity. So about a three, a two and a half, you know, if someone's got real sensitive skin, it should be even less sensitive than that, or excuse me, less acidic than that. So it, it, to give you an example, if you had a salicylic acid and it was 40% and the overall pH is three, right? And then you have a salicylic acid, which is 60%, we're just pretending. And its overall acidity level is about two. That one will actually be stronger. Right. Or I should say, excuse me, let's say you only had a 20 a 20% with the pH of, uh, you know, of two. When to drop down that percentage and, and make the pH higher or pH stronger, that would be stronger. So if that kind of makes sense, you really need to know the acidity of the product if you want the client to be safe, right? You don't want to burn your client. You don't want your client to have a lot of erythema or the removal of epithelial tissue. So afterwards, they're going to end up with crusting, scabbing. That's mm. never anything that that we want. Yeah, I wanted to just say too, the salicylic acid is great as a, a germicidal. It helps to control oil. It's really good for thick, thick, oily, oily skin and preferably someone who's not allergic to aspirin. And very good point about the the pH pencil, which is very easy to get. You can get it on Amazon or on online. And I think that's something that'd be useful for everyone to have. Michelle, do you do you take that out for every client or mostly just when you're unsure or maybe when somebody's new? Mm-hmm. When somebody's new or when I'm doing appeal, when I'm doing appeal, I do check. I might not check each and every time if they're having different treatments, but for sure, if they're going to have a peel, I do like to test the peel so that I know the overall pH of the product in general. Um, you know, you don't want to happen what happened to me on my own, but yes, it's good to just have it there is, is sort of a backup. And it's just one of your tools that you have in your tool chest that you can grab a hold of when, you know, when you need it. Yes. I can't imagine if you were <laughs> to perform that one on somebody else. So it's, it's good, <laughs> not good, but um, better probably that you were the dummy and, and you were experiencing it and knew exactly, exactly what I to do right away. In that case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's always yeah. important to check on that. I mean, I could imagine if you were doing it on somebody else and they're saying it's it's so hot, you're thinking, but it's just, you know, lactic 20%. It shouldn't be anything crazy, but just really goes to show the acidity and the pH really matters a lot. And you want to be sure when it comes to things like acids on, on people's faces. Exactly. You just don't want to burn anybody. And it's always better to start slow or start, you know, lower. You can always go stronger next time around. If it's a new client or you're a new, a newer esthetician and um, you're just getting into peels, start with the more gentle peels, you know, take a peels class. That's really important so that you learn the safety and just peels in general and take a deep dive into it. But absolutely, you want to start low. Michelle, this could be our last question before we wrap up, but I wanted sure. to ask, 
where do you draw the line if you're an esthetician who really enjoys, you know, higher strength peels and chemical peels that actually peel the skin? Where do you draw the line between, you know, proper shedding or expected shedding versus taking it too far and potentially injuring the skin and and causing more adverse risks? That's a good question. And I know a lot of, a lot of clients want to see that shedding and they feel if they don't see that shedding, that not enough is happening. And that's really, to be honest with you, not the case. Some people are big exfoliators in general. I mean, their skin naturally exfoliates more where you can see the sloughing. Others just don't slough as, um, you know, noticeably, it's not as obvious, but you're still sloughing. You know, if you're removing that um, epithelial tissue, right? You're, you're triggering the basal cell zone below to create more cells and you will get sloughing. So a little bit of flaking is fine. You definitely don't want any burning. Uh, like I mentioned before, with often you need to check with your state board what you're allowed to use. A pH of about three is kind of, you know, where it most state boards feel it's safe. I know Jesner's peels are at a pH of 2.5, pretty much across the board, so they're more acidic. And I check with my client if I'm doing a professional peel, of course, and, and ask them, how are you feeling now? You know, do you need a fan um, on a scale of 1 to 10? Um, you know, if you know, 10 being the worst thing imaginable and 1 being nothing. When you get to about a 4, let me know, you know, and if it starts to become very blanched or a lot of erythema, um, I, if this is the first time I might neutralize it sooner, definitely you don't want to go over what manufacturer says. So if the manufacturer says two minutes, then it's two minutes. Even if they're not saying, you know, they're saying, oh, I'm fine. I could take another 10 minutes. You still want to do two minutes. The manufacturer tested it for you and you want to follow that to be on the safe mm -hmm. side. And maybe mm -hmm. next time you can leave it on a little longer. Uh, they don't have to feel like their face is on fire or be bright red or have, you know, peel like a snake right. to get the benefits. <laughs> yes, I think we're, some of us have the no pain, no gain mentality in our head. And it's, it's not always the case. And maybe, you know, in the 80s, like you said, Michelle, when, when you were doing glycolic peels or certain peels that don't have as much, you know, technology as we do now, maybe that was the case, but I, I think there are a lot of great peels nowadays where you don't have to feel any physical shedding to get a great result. And, and maybe, maybe somebody doesn't even want to deal with that downtime. So you just really want to be on the same page with your client, even if they've got gotten chemical peels somewhere else before it's the first time you're seeing them and you really want to get comfortable and probably rather under treat or just follow the instructions versus think, ah, I really want to, you know, give them the most for their money. I, I think I kind of felt that way when I was less experienced or you would let, let the client take control of, of, the the treatment which you never want to happen so that's right <laughs> you want to make sure you're in years and years ago <laughs> yes we all do yeah yes I, I i totally agree um i would say that you know let your educate your client let them know that you don't need to see massive exfoliation to have the benefits and remember if you're doing a peel especially a, a stronger peel cells talk to cells they communicate with cells cells on the top can communicate with cells in the dermis with a stronger peel um through cytokines and activate fibroblasts you don't need to burn so deeply that you're causing and creating and wreaking havoc on the skin certainly you don't want any bleeding and i agree with you when you have that first time client uh, you want to start it really really gent gentle because you just don't know what their skin is capable of of handling you really don't i mean i've even had clients react to enzymatic exfoliants with, you know, maybe the, that are more home care products. So you definitely want to be, you know, aware of, of their tolerance level. And if, if you've never worked with, you know, a mild physical exfoliant or an enzyme, I personally wouldn't jump straight into higher chemical peels. 
And I agree. And when you're using an enzyme like bromelain, right, from pineapple or, or a papain from papaya, most of those enzymes are biological catalysts. They're not meant to massively turn over the skin cells. They're meant to sit on the surface of the skin and digest the keratinized skin. And so most of the time they are more gentle, but not always. They could be at a higher percentage and maybe mixed in with other things. They may be mixed right. in with pumpkin peel, right, which is a uh, a hybrid, half acid. So you really need to be careful in anyone that you start the first time around, um, just start light. You could always go a little more aggressively later on. I think that's the, maybe the episode title, go low and slow, because you can always build whether it's a retinol, a vitamin C or an acid or a chemical peel. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, and hopefully in another episode, we could talk about some more of these wonderful active ingredients because there's so many, many of them out there. And there's some oldies, but goodies. There's some new and innovative ingredients. And it's it's great to know how they affect the skin physiologically for the safety of your client to make sure it's effective so you can educate your client and, and, and just sort of stay on top of everything. I think that's really, really important. Yes, we have a lot more ground to cover, so please keep your eye out for a part two with Michelle. We have a lot more ingredients to go over, such as mandelic acid, niacinamide, um, and some other goodies. So thank you so much for your time today, Michelle. I think this was wonderful, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what everybody thinks of this episode because we can all, whether we're new SDs or the most experienced SD, I think it's always good to kind of brush up on ingredients. Thank you so much, Tess. It's always great to be here with you, and it's always great to be here on the show and, you know, always happy to provide, a, you know, any, any information that I can. Michelle is amazing. Thank you so much, Michelle. Please check out her info below for more information on her ingredients course and the other resources she offers. She is such a gem and we're so lucky to have her. Thank you so much, Michelle. And thank you all for listening. We will talk to you in the next episode. Thank you so much. I hope to see you again really soon. Oh, yes, you will. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Okay, bye-bye.